Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Our feedback segment, we open it every episode with the feedback segment. Why? Because the show exists to help you with your problems. Now, I've mentioned this a couple of times in the past. I'm going to continue to mention it ad nauseum. We have a different way of doing feedback. The, the, the way that basically every podcast in the world does feedback is feedback comes in, you read what you can, you address what you can on the air, and then the rest of them just kind of go into the ether. And we didn't like that way because it's, first of all, if somebody has that question, probably somebody else does, but how do you even begin to organize uh, a community collection of problems? And so Steve Evans has stepped up and said, I will help you do that. And so he goes through every single week and categorizes all of the emails. And we are organizing them such that we can build segments based off of where people's problems are. But for that to work, you have to send your issues in to live at asknoahshow.com. Steve tells me every time I mention it, it generates more and more feedback. So this is my ask to you. If you have a question, if you have a thought, if you have something to add, maybe you have something to add to a different piece of feedback. Maybe you know how to solve that person's issues. Well, send that into live at asknoahshow.com. We would appreciate it. Our first email tonight comes from Flamore. He writes in and says, hi, I've rented a Linode instance and I've created a bucket. What would be my next steps regarding backing up my RAID 1 ButterFS storage array to the cloud? I'm running OpenSUSE Tumbleweed and my server is on Leap 15.2. Well, Flamore, uh, a couple of things there. So the first thing is it, I don't entirely understand what you're trying to back up from or to. So let's start with this. If you've rented a Linode instance or DigitalOcean Droplet, the reality is it doesn't really matter which VPS provider that you use. They all support this functionality. And you want to back up that VM. The Probably the simplest, most straightforward way to do that is inside of the, the hypervisor's control panel. So you'd go into Linode and undoubtedly they offer a way to do backups. And they, the nice thing about doing that is it is built right into the hypervisor, right? And so you're using the snapshot functionality of the hypervisor um, to make backups or to create additional images. And of course, and I don't have a lot of experience with Linode, but on the DigitalOcean side, it allows me to mail those snapshots or email those snapshots to other DigitalOcean users. Those users can then spin that or recreate that droplet. Uh, and that that's proved just unbelievably useful for clients and those kinds of things. Um, so that's one thing to do. You can you can use the built-in utilities that you get for the service that you paid for. And indeed, one of the biggest reasons that people rent servers in gigantic data centers from gigantic VM hosting companies is precisely because you don't have to deal with some of this stuff yourself. You can kind of leave some of the administration to someone else. However, the built-in management has failed. Uh, and I, I, we had this happen on DigitalOcean at, at, at some great cost to us. Um, and so I would not tell you that it's not reliable. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that any system can and does fail. And so you should always have a plan to back up your own data. And that plan really should work with any sort of deployment infrastructure. 
And so today you're on Linode and you should be able to back up your data on Linode. But tomorrow, if you decide to set up your own server in your house, you should be able to do that. If down the road you want to take that server and put it into a data center, your backup strategy should work for all of those kinds of deployments. And so you have a couple of options. You mentioned specifically that you're wanting to back up your RAID 1 ButterFS storage array. So first things first, if you have ButterFS on both sides, you can use ButterFS send and receive. And you can do the backup that way. RSync is probably the go-to standard way that I would back up a server. If you were a client and you called us and said, I have this computer at home and I want to rent a Linode droplet and I just want my data to go back there, we would undoubtedly be using RSync to set that up. I have a link for you in the show notes. You'll find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's a link to how to set up ButterFS send and receive to move your data. So hopefully that helps you. If not, please email us back live at asknoahshow.com or give us a call at 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Our second email tonight, it comes in from Michael. Michael writes in and says, hi, Noah. I have two quick questions, if I may, regarding smart home devices. After having bad luck with some retail smart devices, especially with the Wemo smart plugs, I've started to look into Tasmoda and purchase some plugs from cloudfree.shop. I love them. My question is, are there any similar devices that can be installed as a relay behind a plug or behind a light switch rather than having to put those plugs into the outlet? I thought I remember you mentioning something along those lines at some point, but maybe I'm crazy. My kiddos just love pressing the buttons on the little smart plugs, and ideally, I would like something that I could put behind the wall plate. I'm comfortable with wiring a relay or something of that sort. Uh, it sounds like the way to go, but I couldn't get them to fit behind most of my outlets. So a couple of things there, Michael. Um, let's start with this. Uh, you don't want to put stuff behind your outlets. And the reason that you don't want to put stuff behind your outlets is because, it, depending on where you live in the world, it's probably not going to meet electrical code. Um, if there's a switch or if there's a if there's a junction, it needs to be in a box. And if there's an outlet, it needs to be facing forward. Now, I, I actually we've run into this a number of times because there are so many times, particularly in the low voltage world, where I want to take the DC transformer and I want it in the wall somewhere. I would like just a plug that goes in the wall and I like put the DC transformer in the wall so nobody can see it and then just have the DC cord come out to whatever device is mounted on the wall. And I have been told time and time again by every electrician we've ever worked at that that's just not a thing. Um, so for that perspective, I wouldn't encourage you to try to put things in the wall uh, if they're not designed to go in a wall. However, uh, you did hear me mention this because this is something that also drives me nuts. When One of the things that I really dislike about smart home automation, and, and boy, if that isn't more true today than it has been in the past, it turns largely into a bad science project. And this was certainly the case with X10. You buy these little modules, they promise the world, but when you actually get them, if you test them, if you set them out on the desk and you turn one on, it turns on, you turn it off, it turns off, and you say, oh, that works, you put it in your house. And nine out of every 10 times, it will turn on or off. But then one out of every 10 times, it doesn't turn on. And I, I'd just rather have the system not work at all than work 90% of the time. That's the worst, because then I trust it 90% of the time, and 10% of the time, it lets me down. And of course, that is made clear to me, of course, when... A family member screams from the bathroom that they can't get the light to turn on, right? You can only put up with that for so long before you're like, all right, this doesn't work. So I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of patience for cheap stuff. And so uh, I've moved to all Lutron lighting. And the thing that Lutron lighting, it, it costs, it's, it's a lot of money. I'll just tell you up front. The switches are 150 bucks. I think um, the outlet ones are probably in that neighborhood as well. So it's a very expensive system. But there are a couple of advantages to it. 
First of all, I am a big fan of things not being seen. Everything in my house from, from start to finish was planned on a computer first, then laid out. Then I went to whatever professional deals with that industry and said, here's kind of what I want to do. Do you have any suggestions? And so all of the wires in my entire house are behind walls. There are two drops of cat six to every wall in the house because I don't know where I'm going to plug things in. But if I'm going to plug something in, chances are it's plugging in with cat six. The lights are all controlled by Lutron. And the thing that I like about Lutron and the Radio Raw 2 platform is, first of all, the Radio Raw 2 platform works by replacing the switch or dimmer. And so you pull the switch out, you replace it with one of their control devices. Now, the bridge that actually talks to Home Assistant or anything else is the Radio Raw 2 repeater and and it speaks its own rf language to all of the switches and so what that means is when i walk in and i push a button that is local control of that particular light load because it's not going through the rf system it's not going through ip nothing's happening i push the button light comes on that's it but that light can be remote controlled it can also be remotely monitored so it's the best of both worlds local control when you're standing there remote control when you're not if you want to do what you're talking about which is toggle the power of an outlet Without having to have that little smart plug here, the best way that I have found to do that, and you can do this with Lutron, you can do this with Wemo, you can do this with basically any light switch, and this requires a little bit of electrical wiring, but you said you were comfortable with that, wire the outlet to a switch, then put a smart switch in and add that to Home Assistant and have that switch control that outlet. Your kids can go up to the outlet and plug something in, unplug something, whatever, the outlet is actually controlled from a switch. In the case of my house, the outlets that are in the main areas of the house, living room, dining room, those kinds of things, there is a large panel when you first walk into the house, and that's what has the thermostat and uh, the, the whatever you call keypad to disarm the, the security system and our access control system and all that stuff. As well, as, in addition to that, there is a five-gang uh, box full of switches, and those switches control the outlets throughout the house. And so in our living room, for example, we have what we call accent lights, and essentially they're different things that I have built and out of wood painted them. And then behind them, I've placed LEDs. And so there's like this three dimensional glow thing that happens when those accent lights are on and I use it to illuminate or draw focus to different things in the living room. Point is the, 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 those LEDs would not tolerate being dimmed. And so you can't use a dimmer, but Lutron makes an accessory switch and it just turns the power on and off. Now Wemo makes the same thing. There's a number of other companies that make the same thing. So you don't have to purchase Lutron if it's out of your price range. But the right, the proper way to do that, to the proper way to automate the, the, the outlets in your house is to control the outlets with switches and then automate the switches. Um, so you can, and then the thing is, you, all of those smart switches, the vast majority of them support reading the status of the switch. And so the nice thing about that is the control source, you know, where you have that switch that controls the outlet doesn't necessarily have to be anywhere that your family um, would know or care about because they they'll most likely be turning the load on and off either through home assistant, through a voice control um, or an accessory switch that you put on the wall specifically for that or a little tablet or something like that. Right. So uh, and my dad's house is wired such that all of his dimmers in the entire house are all in the electrical room because when he had his house built, he didn't, it's, it's weird. I wouldn't do it this way, but that's what he did. He has all of the dimmers and all of the electrical wiring in his house goes into a single room and the switches that are around the house that you see, they are nothing more uh, then remote controls that uh, control a big controller that sits back in his electrical room. So lots of different ways to do it. 
Um, but that that's the best way. Control the outlet from a switch. Uh, his second question, he says, in regarding regarding VLANs for devices, instead of creating a VLAN, I've just cut off outside internet access to the devices. I have left from retail again the Wemo devices, but doing this allows them to still work within Home Assistant. They're just not paired to their service. Is this sufficient or should I really be creating a separate network for them? Depends on how much you trust the, the organization, right? By default, if you just remove the default gateway, in theory, the device should not be able to talk to the internet. And if a device is doing if a device is following the 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 way that you interpret the UI to be to be configuring the device, and then then that is enough. You've taken away the default gateway, can't talk to the internet. It should be fine. But consider this, and this is the, you got to put your tin foil hat on a little bit to get behind this. But consider the fact that you don't necessarily know that when you tell it this is the default gateway I'm going to use, you don't necessarily know that that device is going to follow that, right? And I'll give you one example of where this came up. Had a super microserver. Uh, we didn't want it on the internet. We didn't want it doing anything. And so we configured the interface, the whole nine yards. And unbeknownst to, uh, and unbeknownst to me personally, one of the other techs had plugged in a second ethernet interface. That ethernet interface by Supermicro at default is set up to be their... Um, it's not iDRAC, whatever the super micro version of iDRAC, I can't think of it. Um, but the remote control system that they that you can actually get BIOS level access to the server uh, through a jo little Java web applet. And, um, and, and, and it got an IP address and it got a default gateway because DHCP handed it out. And we had no idea that this server had, had connected to a network that we didn't want it to. And so I point that out to say that you should, if you do it right, yes, that should be enough. Um, but you need to make sure that you understand all of the things that can happen because if all it would require is somebody to say, hey, ask the DHCP server how we get to the Internet and it will tell us. Right. Um, I personally, I, I split everything off into a VLAN and for PCI compliance, it would not be enough to just say, hey, I, I, I took the gateway away. Um, it has to be on two entirely separate networks, even if the Wemo devices can't get to the Internet. It also prevents somebody from somebody else that's on your network from screwing with them or messing with them or whatever. So my suggestion would be if you can split them up into to two separate networks, just have an internet of things network and it gets to the internet and it doesn't do anything else. Uh, and then have like a local network that runs and, and doesn't necessarily need access to the internet. Uh, both of those should work. Our third email comes from Brandon. Brandon writes in and says, thinking of getting into Bitcoin, but I don't really know where to start. I'm not interested in trading or anything like that, but I thought it might be an asset to have at some point. What's the best way to get started? Enjoying the shows. Thanks, Brandon. So the first thing, and it sounds like you and I are on the same page here, is you should not invest in Bitcoin. It's a terrible investment. It has no, it has a very limited track record. It's a very volatile uh, currency. It goes up and down. Uh, it's just not a good investment. Um, but and that, that, that's not to say that you can't make any money with it. People have paid off their houses with it. People have bought in cars with it. I've personally uh furnished my entire house with bitcoin bitcoin went up sold it went and bought furniture for my whole house um but statistically speaking it's not a good choice statistically speaking it's a terrible investment it's just something fun to play with now the u.s treasury doesn't define bitcoin or really most cryptocurrencies as a currency they define it as a commodity and so from that perspective it's not really regulated and so this makes again it makes giving, treating it like any sort of a financial asset problematic. You have to kind of treat it like a toy. But it's important to consider this. Dollars only have value because we as human beings have decided that dollars have value. 
And if at some point we decide that the pocket lint has value, then pocket lint would have value and the paper thing that you call a dollar may not. Cryptocurrency is unique in part because nobody ever really envisioned that somebody would put more trust in a mathematical technology than they would a government. A government has things like a military and an infrastructure and, and those kinds of things. And this is just a piece of code that somebody wrote. But what happened with cryptocurrency is precisely because it's a trustless currency, it took off like wildfire and people found all sorts of uses that traditional currency didn't fit. You don't have to trust the actors. You just have to trust the math. And this makes crypto very exciting, not only from a practical standpoint, but from a technological standpoint. Long term, I think crypto is going to be the de facto way that we spend money. I say that because it's simply too problematic for uh, we. If you think about the way that we function in society today, how many of you actually go take your paycheck? How many of you even get a paycheck? Let's start there and then cash it for cash and then take the cash and then go and spend it. I'm sure there's some of you that do that. The vast majority of you probably shows up in your bank account and you never actually spend the cash out of your bank account. You just swipe your debit card or you use your phone. And so if you think about the, the the concept of money is electronically transferred into your account, money is electronically transferred out of your account. What's the most efficient, robust way to do that? Well, it would probably be with something like a blockchain. We really don't need a huge banking industry to handle that for us. So long term, I think there's going to arrive a day, undoubtedly, where I will, instead of going to eBay and picking out the item I want and then completing the auction and then I log into PayPal and then I transfer money from my bank account to PayPal and three days later it's there and then... I send a PayPal transaction to a guy in China, and that's held up for how many days because reasons. And then PayPal finally releases that transaction, but then he's got to convert it into yen, and then he does that, and then he gets his money. And so like 31 days later, he ships my item. And then because it's coming from China, 61 days after that, I, I get it or whatever, right? That can all be obfuscated to I won the thing, I gave him money, he sent me the thing, and that's it. And... If you don't, if you have markets that don't have a reputation or fee feedback, eBay is pretty good because really there's no there's no risk to the seller. You don't ship the item until you have the money, and there's not a lot of incentive for a buyer who paid full price for an item to to screw you and say that they didn't they didn't get their item. So uh, the the reputation feedback system on eBay I think works actually pretty well. But if you even if you didn't have that, you could have escrow, right? And so the the, the buyer would give the money to a third party. The seller would then ship the item when the buyer receives the item, then the money is released. And so you could do something like that. So the first question you have to ask yourself if you're looking to get into cryptocurrency is what are your goals? If you're if you're looking to just experiment with technology, then I would consider you to look at other cryptocurrencies and not just Bitcoin. If you're interested in learning about Bitcoin specifically, go for it. The good thing about Bitcoin is that it was first. And so it has a long established it has an established track history as a cryptocurrency. But the problem with Bitcoin is it was it was invented first. And so we are learning all of the problems that come with a blockchain and cryptocurrency. And there are some scaling issues. And so at, when Bitcoin gets to twenty, thirty thousand dollars per coin, which I don't think people had really anticipated in order that the transaction fee alone to confirm transactions becomes so high that you can't you can't do it for something like a 30 cent candy bar, 50 cent candy bar. Um, and so it doesn't scale in that way or it doesn't break. I, divide in that way, I guess. The cost of Bitcoin gets so hard that it becomes impractical. And so there are a couple of other currencies that you might consider. One of, uh, well, we'll get to those in a second, but the easiest way, if you want to do Bitcoin proper, is to go over to Coinbase.com and sign up for an account. And the reason that I recommend Coinbase 
Coinbase is going to treat Bitcoin essentially like a bank account. So you create an account, you sign in. I think they actually give you $5 in Bitcoin for free. And then you add your bank account and buy Bitcoin. That's it. And you can buy Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash. Uh, that's all supported in their site. If you're not married to Bitcoin specifically, I might consider looking at some alternative currencies. But by the way, before I get to that, the other site that you could use is blockchain. And I, I started with Coinbase. I eventually went to blockchain because blockchain allows you to do something that most other crypto sites won't let you do. And that's monitor offline wallets. You don't want to understand this. If cryptocurrency is only secure when you have the private keys and you store them in a place that nobody else can get to them in order for Coinbase to do what they do. That doesn't work. That model doesn't work. So they have to, they manage your keys for you. Now, if you're just getting started, that's a good thing because you can't screw yourself over. The bad news is if Coinbase goes the way of Mt. Gox and they just steal all your money, there's nothing you can do about it. Now, they've been around for a long time and I don't think that's going to happen. But one of the things that blockchain.com allows you to do is you can set up a wallet and you can do the same thing that you do on Coinbase, buy, buy and sell Bitcoin, store it in an account, that kind of thing. But you can add an offline wallet address. And that offline wallet address will allow you to monitor the account balance of a Bitcoin account without having the private key on the system. And so I can see how much money is there and I can see that it's still there and that nobody has taken it. But nobody has the opportunity to spend that money, even if they had access to my I can't even spend my money on blockchain. I have to go into my physical safe, get a piece of paper that has the physical key on it and enter that into blockchain before the money can be spent. I like that. Uh, and that's a feature that just doesn't exist on a lot of other crypto sites. But if you're not married to Bitcoin specifically, you might consider looking at uh, some other coins. Two that you might want to check out, Ethereum and Monero. Monero is essentially cash for a connected world. This is what I'm talking about when I say that you're, 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 you're at a point where it makes more sense to do this with crypto. Uh, Monero is one of those things as fast as private, it's secure with Monero. You are your own bank. And so you can spend safely and others are not going to be able to see the balances or track your activity, those kinds of things. Um, if you want to get into mining, uh, I would not mine Bitcoin because it costs a lot of money and you should not mine anything really to make money because that if you, if you're going to do that, you have to go in all the way. You, what you have to understand is that there are warehouses filled with miners uh, and these days they're filled with miners that mine all sorts of different cryptocurrencies. Um, in fact, they have specific software that will allow you to dynamically mine various different cryptocurrencies. So if today Litecoin's profitable, it will mine Litecoin. If tomorrow Monero is profitable, it will mine Monero. And then when your payouts comes, it automatically converts all of that into Bitcoin and then deposits it into a Bitcoin wallet. So you can participate in mining whatever cryptocurrency is hot today. Um, but store all of your money in Bitcoin. So that's the way it could go. Um, but personally, I use ASIC miners. And so I don't have any recommendations for some specific software. ASIC miners are hardware devices that you purchase. You log in. They usually have like a little web UI. Uh, you log into the web UI and give it a username, password, and the site that you want to mine for. And it just bobs your uncle. It starts mining. And you can get email notifications when it's working. Um, so, yeah, check out Ethereum, check out uh, Monero. If you're, if you're, if you're stuck on Bitcoin, Bitcoin's a great way to go. Just understand that at whatever we're up to now, 20 some thousand dollars for a Bitcoin, it's a little impractical to work with.
Our fourth email comes in from Daniel. Daniel writes in and says, Hello, Noah. First of all, thank you for the wonderful podcast. I'm so glad I was able to find it. I think your explanations are always on point and understandable, even for a Linux beginner like myself. I'm running Manjaro and have been for slightly less than a year now, my main machine. It's really, it's a really steep learning curve and I'm facing some of the difficulties. I'm a computer science student from Germany and all of my lectures are held online due to COVID-19. Long story short, I'm only two, I only have two Bluetooth headsets with microphones, the Anchor Soundcore Life Q20 and the Huawei FreeBuds Pro. To connect them to my Linux machine, I bought a cheap Bluetooth dongle from TP-Link. The problem is, I can't get my microphone input to work. I've tried research on audio protocols on Linux, but I just can't find any of the complicated things to understand. Do you know what I have to do to get my setup working properly? I've managed to use another audio protocol, which allows me to use the audio input of my headset, but then the audio output was awful. Daniel. So the first thing is, you're right. Uh, there are a couple of different protocols. Um, there is A2DP and then there is HSP. And HSP is the profile that you're going to want because A2DP will only allow a unidirectional transfer of audio. And so you can do two channels, but you can do two channels one direction or the other direction. And so what you want to do is change it to um uh you want to change from a to dp uh and you want to go to hsp um so the, the the first thing that you should check before you go any further check the dongle that you bought is the tp link dongle does that even support msp um or does it only support a to dp uh unidirectional audio protocol and and so that that's the first thing i would check is, is the is the dongle is the specs even support it if it does, the easiest way I found to work around these kinds of things is install Blueman. And Blueman, sudo apt install Blueman, is a Bluetooth configuration utility. Now, a few years ago, back when, before they came out with the newest Magic Keyboard, this was the only way that I could get an Apple keyboard paired with a Linux box. Because you'd enter, they'd say, enter in the code, you'd enter in the code, it would say it was wrong. And this allowed me to do it. Um, I've since used it numerous times to resolve all sorts of audio issues on Linux, and the thing I like about it is that it's a it's a UI utility, and so you can it literally the the Bluetooth device is going to pop up, and it's going to show up as an input and an output device, and you're just going to be able to choose again, assuming that your your dongle supports it. And if it doesn't, then you should probably replace that. Now, that's the easy way because you got a UI and you just click on it, it works. The quote unquote right way is to get Pulse Audio to automatically switch the protocol from a to or pro, excuse me, switch the profile from A2DP to, HS, to HSP. And that is possible starting with Pulse Audio 11.0. It is possible to automatically switch the profile from whatever microphone access is requested by the application. However, it's disabled by default. So in order to make that work, you have to find the load module, module-bluetooth-policy, and you'll find that line in slash Etsy slash Pulse slash default.pa. And you'll have to change that to load module, module-bluetooth-policy, auto underscore switch equals two. And I'll have a link or I'll have that those uh, I'll have that script in the show notes of podcast.asnoahshow.com. But in, in that event, Pulse Audio would be able to switch from the device profile to HSP whenever the microphone wants to access it and request the change back to A2T, excuse me, A2DP after the stream is closed. And uh, once you do that, you're going to have to reload Pulse Audio. Um, so just Pulse Audio, tech K, pa Pulse Audio, tech capital D. You should be good to go. 
Our pick of the week this week is just perfection. You'll find more at extensions.gnome.org. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the podcast at podcast.snoahshow.com. But this is a GNOME extension that allows you to disable choice elements in the GNOME UI. So you can it, it disable the on-screen display, the search, the dash, the workspace switcher, the top panel, and the app gesture. Um, I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a, a daily GNOME user, but back when I was using GNOME, these are the things I want to be able to easily turn off and on. And there, other than GNOME Tweet Tool, there really wasn't a great way to do that. Just Perfection is a very small little UI uh, that allows you to just toggle this stuff on and off. Um, so very, very cool little utility. Also allows you to just globally shut off GTK themes, turn them back on. Um, so really happy with this little extension. Very cool if you're a, if you're a GNOME user and want to essentially want to make GNOME work the way that every other desktop environment works. Uh, again, extensions.gnome.org. It's called Just Perfection. You can install it right from the GNOME um, from the GNOME extensions website. And of course, we'll have a link for you in, in the show at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our gadget of the week is the Gamon S620. It's 35 bucks. It's on Amazon and it works flawlessly with Linux. So let me tell you what the Gamon S620 is. It is a hardware tablet a drawing tablet, USB hardware drawing tablet. And so you connect this, I don't have a screen or anything, but you connect it as a USB device to your Linux computer and it is able to emulate a, a, a human interface device and and has a little pen and you can draw. The pen supports, uh, supports pressure and so you can make thicker or lighter lines depending on how you draw. You can shade the whole nine yards. Very, very cool little device. Now, little backstory on this. I, uh, when we do deployments for clients, we primarily use Wacom. And so if they say, hey, we want to be able to draw, we want to do this, it's, it's Wacom. And it's just a matter of, do you want the $100 Wacom or the thousands of dollars Wacom? Because they, they go all over the place, right? Wacom has fantastic support and has had fantastic support on Linux for years. And so we've always kind of gravitated towards them. And so I'm on a service call and have a client that says, hey, I need to get this drawing tablet to work. And so I took the drawing tablet and turned out the problem that they were having was they just didn't know what software to use the drawing tablet with. So they had, you know, open up Microsoft Word and scribble on the tablet. Nothing really happens. Can't figure out why. Right. So. We first thing we did was we paired it with Krita and this thing works fantastically. Now, this is not on Linux at this point yet. Right. We pair it with Krita. It works fantastically for the client. So, of course, that lasts five seconds. And I'm like, well, I have to see if this thing works with Linux. Grab my daughter's laptop, plug the Gamo S620 in immediately registers, fire up Krita, start drawing. That easy. Works flawlessly with Linux. And it's $35 on Amazon. It's an absolutely fantastic little thing. Uh, and, and I should point out, if your kids are artistic in any way, shape, or form, you absolutely have to have Krita installed for them and let them play with it. And if you pair it with the game on uh, S620, which we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com, they're probably going to have even more fun. I, had to, I literally had to pry it from my daughter's uh, hands. And when I gave it back to the, the person that, that, um, that had asked us, to, asked us to set it up, I, I, I told her, I said, hey, make sure your kids play with it. Let me know what they think, because this is a really fantastic little device. So the Game On S620, it's available from Amazon, 35 bucks, and works flawlessly with Linux. In the news this week, GNOME 40 got a major design revamp. GNOME 40 is due for release on March of 2021. Now, GNOME tries to reinvent the wheel with the way you work. And if you're willing to subjugate yourself to that, that is to say you watch the videos 
or read the documentation to understand the proper way to work in GNOME, there's value to this method. It really does work well. Um, it feels a lot like macOS to me. If I, if, if I get somebody that comes from macOS, I sit, typically will sit them down in front of GNOME and they typically feel very comfortable. But that bar that used to be at the side is now at the bottom. Desktops, which were previously cascaded, would zoom you all the way out. Now the cascaded desktops are at the top, and then below the cascaded desktops are the applets. This is a really, really good overhaul. I did not find GNOME to be inviting for years. I didn't. Uh, It's a blank desktop. There's a single activities thing in the corner. There's really nothing there that tells you what to click on or how to click on. People are almost always confused when they open up an application and can't find the application's menu because it's up on that little black bar where you wouldn't expect it to be and there's no indication that there's a menu up there. It, it just does not, it's not an intuitive desktop environment. It just isn't. There's no cues for anything. Uh, no save icons, nothing. Um, and so if you watch the tutorials and you kind of get your head wrapped around the way that GNOME is supposed to work, then you can kind of, then you can, then you can really kind of be a power user with it. Um, and indeed, we have an episode, the perfect GNOME setup. So if you want to know what those are, you can go back and look at that. Um, but GNOME 40 takes a different page and, and GNOME 40, instead of a blank desktop, GNOME 40 greets users with the activities mode, um, which again has been redesigned. And so you immediately see your three desktops. And so you understand that there are three desktop environments. If there are applications running on any of them, you can see them. That's been another problem I've seen with GNOME. All of the applications that you'd want to launch are now shown underneath the bar at the very bottom, which is a more logical place for a dock since it's literally where every other operating system puts their dock. Um, it, that they've, they've changed that to default. So it just, it really looks polished and good. Um, I'm excited to see where GNOME goes. I'm also excited to see where, what Red Hat does with it. The longer that GNOME stays the default in so many desktops, and now they're expanding into phones, the more polished it's going to be, the better it's going to be. And so as I, as you know, as I, as I look through this again, we'll, we'll wait till March, 2021 until it actually gets out and then we'll put it through its paces. But from what I'm seeing in the mockups, this is fantastic. Also from the list of straight fantastic is Caden live 20.12, which serves as the new stable release and a new feature release. Now I have to tell you, I was not hot on Caden live for a long time, primarily because it just felt like a beginner's video tool for a long time. The past few years though, They've really come on par uh, with Adobe Premiere and, and, and really have gotten to the point now where I don't, I used to use Lightworks because there were just functionality and features that I needed in Lightworks. And frankly, Caden Live would crash on me from time to time. Didn't have that issue in Lightworks. All of that has been gone for quite some time. And Caden Live 20.12 uh, introduces some really cool things. This is going to be really fun to play with over Christmas. So the first thing is same track transitions. And this feature is going to drastically improve the editing workflow for a lot of users. To activate it, simply press the U key. Uh, or pre- tap on the new icon in the timeline toolbar with the clip selected on the on the on the timeline. Uh, the the uh, talking of effects. There's a new video effect called pillar, and th- this is really cool. So there are a couple of go-to video editing tactics that anybody that's edited video for five minutes has figured out. And so the first thing is the Ken Burns effect. Ken Burns is a, a documentary 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 maker, and he came up with a way of presenting still images such that they were very engaging while he or the voiceover guy talked over them. And what he would do is he would either slowly zoom in, slowly zoom out, or slowly pan from the left or to the right. And so you see this in a number of documentaries. 
Ken Burns is famous for it. And so that is one of the effects that people jump to and say, ah, this is just something we're going to shoot this. We have a still picture. That's one way to do it. The other thing that you eventually run into with video editing, again, if you've edited video for more than five minutes, is somebody comes to you with some video footage and they go, here, this is what I want to use. And you look at it and you go, oi, you have VVS. And they go, what is VVS? And you say, vertical video syndrome. You turned your phone vertical and now the rest of every camera on planet Earth records horizontally because we see wider than we than, than we face frontwards. But because the phone, the orientation of the phone makes more sense to hold it up and down, that's the way the camera works. And it, it's frustrating to everybody that edits video. Well, the industry practice for a long, long time when somebody hands you a video with VVS and you have to display it in a normal orientation is to take the video, stretch it out until it covers the entire screen so there is no black bars, and then blur it. So it's completely blurred. So you really can't tell what's making out. It has the same color. It has the same feel. And if there's movement, it has movement at the right time. That, those kinds of things. Then you take the vertical video and you center it in the center of the blurred background. And so, again, anybody that's edited video for more than a few minutes has figured out how to do this in whatever their nonlinear video editor is. Pillar is a video effect that does this for you. And so essentially what the effect does is it centers the vertical video and then adds a blurred background to what would otherwise be an empty or black space around it, but it's suitable uh, for displaying a vertical video. So, uh, and they also have a new subtitling tool. I don't do a lot with subtitles, um, but I think it's very, very exciting that you have the opportunity now to upload subtitle files, to create subtitles right on your video, and that's all a native feature of the non-linear video editor. That's absolutely the kind of pro features that we want to see on Linux. So a huge congratulations to Caden Live with their release 20.12. Make sure to go check it out. Again, we'll have the full, complete list of all of the things that are out at, uh, uh, at the, on the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com, or you can find more at cadenlive.org. Probably the largest security story this year uh, is SolarWinds, a massive cybersecurity attack that was ultimately the result of malware masquerading as SolarWinds Orion, uh, a, a tool uh, for remote management uh, put out by the company SolarWinds. Now, if you've not heard of SolarWinds, they're a very well-respected, very large company that produces software for MSPs or managed service providers. And that's essentially what we do at AltaSpeed Technologies. You pay us a flat fee, we manage your infrastructure for you. SolarWinds makes software to do that. And they have a uh, such a wide range of software that we could never go through all of it. The vast majority of their software, so far as we know, was not affected by this. It was specifically the Orion tool. Um, but other tools, again, we don't think that they were affected. Uh, and I'll get to why I we can't necessarily know in a second. So full disclosure, I don't use SolarWinds for anything. I don't have any relationships with them. I, I've never used their software. I, I'm aware of it. I've seen it. I've uh, worked with other companies that use it. Uh, it's very heavily used in government and Fortune 500 companies, but I don't have any personal experience with it uh, myself. We certainly don't use it at AltaSpeed. So these attackers went to incredible lengths to hide their attack, incredible lengths to hide what they were doing. Um, and that's part in part what made it so hard for this thing to be found. Now, there is a protocol. There is a, a guide, if you will, for hacking into other machines. And it goes something like this. We've done an episode on this. Reconnaissance, scanning, gaining access, maintaining access, and then covering tracks. They executed all of these so well that we're just now finding that they were covering their tracks 
and this happened probably back in March. So a bad actor was able to get access to their digital signature. And this is really important. It's the certificate that they use to sign their software to say that it legitimately came from them. And the certificate that SolarWinds uses to sign that software, if taken control by a bad actor, has the ability to send or, or ship software as if it was actually made from SolarWinds. And of course, this is really problematic. And so the, the other thing that this pro- provides a problem with is because no antivirus has a signature to reference against which windows privilege escalation says hey do you trust the software and when you get the call in the help desk and you say uh well what's the manufacturer solar winds oh yeah yeah that's that's legit we use solar winds yep just don't worry about it when you're an organization and you use solar winds and you get that message you don't worry about it when your users call in and they say hey we saw this message in core business improvement.dll and you say what what is core business improvement what is that and they say oh it's the solar winds thing i oh, yeah, don't worry about it that's management thing. Yeah, don't worry about it. But it turns out there was a lot to be worried about. In fact, there probably still is. So the compromise happened back in March of 2020. We didn't find out about the compromise until December of 2020. And if you dig through the Who Is records, uh, you'll notice that the TLD that they're using for the command and control server is actually registered before that and has several changes made to the DNS records as they were updating the pointers. One of the pointers actually points to Microsoft, which is where, which is why some people are saying that they believe that Microsoft was tied into this somehow. I would tell you that I've not, I'm not saying it, I'm not, I don't know to the extent of what companies were, were involved entirely, but from what I've seen, that DNS record that points to Microsoft is likely just them using the Azure uh, infrastructure to, 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 to manage some of this stuff. And in fact, that really makes a lot of sense if you're trying to hide your tracks, because as a system administrator, I don't think twice when I see information flowing to Azure or Amazon AWS. Those two places are just things that you expect. Um, but the point is that this was a very well-planned, very sophisticated adversary, very sophisticated attack. They still don't know who this is. So the malware is called Sunburst. And it's kind of a SolarWinds, Sunburst, get it? And it's dist- it was distributed as an update for SolarWinds, not a real one. Mind you, this is malicious software. So, But nobody really had any, know- any way of knowing what was coming or what was happening. And Antivirus, of course, wasn't going to flag it because the signature was signed by SolarWinds. So as far as Antivirus was concerned, that was a legitimate piece of software. It is tempting here. It is tempting here to say that, well, if this was false, that wouldn't have been a problem. And indeed, if you had someone auditing the code, maybe, maybe it would have been caught before nine months. However, here's the reality. This level of attack with this level of sophistication and this level of access to infrastructure that a bad actor should never have had access to in the first place makes this attack very difficult to defend against and very, very difficult to identify and correct. And that doesn't matter what the software license is. It doesn't matter if it was proprietary or open. Again, yes, somebody could have, in theory, audited the code. But the reality is how much of the software that's on your computer right now, how, many, how much of that software have you audited? How much of that software have you paid someone to audit? And if the answer to that question is, yeah, I don't, well, then we can understand how that really isn't an answer to this. The software license isn't what bit us. So what did the code do? Well, for the first two weeks, it stayed dormant. Again, the kinds of things that make it very difficult to detect detect this thing. Because if you're a system administrator, you walk in, you say, hey, there's this new executable called jobs, and it's transferring files and setting and and profiling the system, but it's showing up as SolarWinds. So you install the program on your laptop, and you stare, and you stare, and you watch, and you wait. It does nothing for 12 days, for 14 days. It does nothing makes it very difficult to detect, very difficult to figure out what it was, what update did SolarWinds ship, and what does that piece of code do? 
System administrators don't know, and we don't have time to, to, to dig into what one company did. One of the things that made this so hard to track down is when you want to look into this update, you just see nothing, and the signature looked normal. And so once it, once it was up and running after the, after the latent period, it sets up a communication system via HTTP to third-party servers, and that's where it starts. That's that, that's what this that's what the 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 code called jobs. That's what it does. It fires up, and that's where it starts transferring files and profiling the system, and then it starts to send data. And this is again what kind of scares me because we've become we we expect to see analytics. We expect to see our machines narking on us and calling back home. That's nothing out of the ordinary these days. That's just another life in the day of IT in twenty twenty. And these guys, they had fake variable names. They had ties to real genuine solar winds components. So there was nothing here that stood out when you're, even if you were doing deep packet inspection, looking and saying, what is this new program doing? What is it sending? And I waited the 14 days, uh, sending metadata to solar winds. So the DNS goes back to Microsoft or Azure. And that command and control was sending legit data, like actual solar winds data, in addition to the command and control signals. And so, the um, the other part of that is the SAML token, and forging the SAML token was allowed them allowed the attackers to become a privileged account in Azure AD. So this is even beyond just hey, we got remote access to this machine. They were able to elevate their access um, in, into a number of organizations, uh, and and that means that they effectively broke into cloud workloads. If you're a person that has your infrastructure managed on Azure and your Active Directory is there and somebody is able to get in or compromise that system, now they own your network and they didn't even have to be there to do that. Um, FireEye has probably the best write-up that I've seen about this. I'll have it linked in the show notes, podcast.snowshow.com. The answer here, the takeaway, the information, that the, the, the thing that you should take away from this story is, first of all, regardless of what the software license is, you should know what's running on your server. You should understand the infrastructure, and you should trust the company. And when stories like this come out, and when you see the level of uh, compromise that some of these companies go through, it should terrify you when you have a large company that it has a large target on their back. And you need to watch that carefully. And you can't just assume that because they're a large company, because they're a well-respected, uh, well-known company, that anything that they produce, just because you see that signature, you should just let it fly. And if something is calling home, you should have a pretty good idea of what it is and why. And I understand as the guy who is in charge of a number of networks that that just isn't always practical. But an email at the beginning of the program was hip to this, right? He emailed and said, hey, I'm going to whack my entire subnet off the internet to eliminate this problem because I don't want those things calling home. He had no idea what those Wemo, Wemo boxes are sending to Wemo, but it makes him uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable that a box is sending information about your network back to somebody that doesn't administrate your network. And that's as true for you if you're an MSP as it is if you're a business owner, by the way. If I come to you with AltaSpeed Technologies and say, hey, here's the stuff I want to install on your computer and here's why, you should ask me questions. And you should understand why that's on your machine. You should understand what kind of access that gives me. And most importantly, and this is a big one, you should understand how to remove it from your infrastructure if I'm no longer involved. Would love to see the statistics, would love to see the statistics of how many machines were compromised that weren't in a current contract with an MSP, but the software was just there from, from before. Again, the phone number to join us, 855-450-NOAH, it's 855-450-6624. The email, of course, live at asknoahshow.com. Soak 
It's the Flatpak app store for Linux that we've all been waiting for. So this is a new storefront for browsing Flatpak apps, and it's in development. And the first impressions, they're fantastic. This thing is pretty much exactly what users have been waiting for. Now, a little backstory here. There are two competing universal application installing platforms. One is Snaps and the other is Flatpaks. Flatpaks is arguably the more technologically superior uh, in packaging format. However, Canonical has just done a spectacular job at going out and gaining support for Snaps. So they go to Microsoft and say, hey, package Skype as a Snap. Hey, package Slack as a, as a, as a Snap. Hey, package whatever the, the, the software is, it's all, they're all Snaps. And Canonical doing that makes Snaps a usable place for people to be because all the software that they want is there. Well, we don't have that on Flatpak yet, but we're getting there. Soak is co-developed by Felix Hacker, uh, the hands behind uh, a slate of well-made, well-designed GTK apps available for Linux desktop, including Shortwave and Fragments, and Christopher Davis, with design input from Tobias Bernard. So it's called Soak. And it's a word uh, meaning Arab Bazaar or Marketplace. It's built on GTK4, and it's designed to be a flat pack store in, in exchange for the GNOME Software Center. Now, GNOME Software is okay. Uh, it's mostly fine if you know what you want to begin with. But if you get a, but the, the problem with GNOME Software is it's not great for discovery. And it's certainly, it, it just leaves a lot wanting in the UI. Um, with Soak, you get a parsable description, a carousel of screenshots, you get a clearly delineated change log, and even links to support info, and when it's available, donations. It has an updates tab, and so flat packs like Snaps, they're set to auto-update by default in the background, and this ensures that users are always have the latest version of the app that they're using. The updates tab, however, makes sure that you know what's changing and going on with your system. You should know what version of software you're running. You should know when it updated, so that if there's a problem, you know where to look. And so the updates tab makes sure that you know what's changing with your system. And if you look, if it doesn't, if it's, and if you don't look, it's going to stay up to date, right? And that's the important part. Defaults reign king. Defaults reign supreme in almost every situation. And so when you have a user that sh that installs a bunch of flat packs, by default, if they don't have a reason to do otherwise, we should just keep those up to date. Also to note, it works fine in vertical mode, which is great for Postmarket OS, because so far as I remember, they're using GNOME. And so if this flat pack store takes off, then you're going to have that software available for the phone as well. Now, there's no stable release date for Soak yet, and the app is an independent tool, so it's unlikely to ever ship uh, as part of GNOME by default. But if you'd like to learn more, you can go to uh, podcast.asknoahshow.com, and we'll have a link for you for both the GitHub repo and the article on, uh, on Soak. Matrix is back in the news this week. Uh, a number of exciting things coming to Matrix. The first is DMA. So DMA is essentially the UK is considering forcing companies to interoperate with each other. So they want Twitter to be able to send messages to Facebook, Facebook to be able to send messages to Apple, those so on and so forth, right? And the way that they're they're choosing to pursue that is with open APIs. And so a great example of that is Slack or Discord. Both of those have open APIs, and so you can tie them to just about anything. Um. Bridges are worth investing if you know they're going to be around for a while. If it's very difficult to convince somebody to put the time, effort, and money to set up a bridge from one platform to the other, when the platform that you're bridging to constantly changes the way that they operate the spec, and then it breaks all the time. And 
Three great examples of this not happening are Telegram, Discord, and Slack. All three of these are an example of how great bridging really can be. There is literally no discernible difference on what platform the person is on from the element side when you're using Matrix. None whatsoever. If that person is on Telegram, Discord, or Slack, they appear to me as a Matrix user. The only way I know that they're not a Matrix user is when I go to look at their MX ID or their Matrix user ID, I see that it's, you know... T underscore blah, 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 T2Bot or blah, 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 Slack. But other than that, aside from that, their avatar changes or, or, or comes through, replies work, mentions work, reactions work, the whole nine yards. And that's because of that open API. And so what Matrix has done is approached the UK government and said, hey, maybe you would just like to use Matrix as the standard for doing this. Now, they don't know if that's necessarily going to be something that's going to get any traction. But the reality is they have already built what everybody else is now looking to force everyone else to do. If you want to have an interoperable messaging standard, that already, already exists. It's called Matrix. Isn't that fantastic? The second thing that 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 has made tremendous progress is communities. So communities are getting an overhaul. And really, the new name for this is spaces. And the idea is that you can collect chats and group them. So there's three different modes that you can use spaces. And the first is communities, which is open, easy to join. So you find the Linux Delta community, for example, when we have it rolled out, and you'll be able to join and just see all of the rooms that are there. And you'll be able to join Ask Noah, Noah's Booth, uh, you know, Opinion Dominion, um, all those things, right? The second is workspaces. And this is where you would use, this is what you would use in something like a business environment. It's invite only. You can't explore them or see them. But once you're invited into that space, you get access to all of the rooms in the space. So I invite you to the AltaSpeed technology space. You see all of our internal rooms. And the third is collections. And this is the, this is your ability as an individual user to organize any collection of matrix room any way you want to group them. And then sharing that, uh, that collection is of course optional. Additionally, they have Dendrite up and running on matrix.org. You can learn more at dendrite.matrix.org. Dendrite is the second generation matrix server. It has much better performance. The server, this is what they're eventually going to use for the monolithic client server combo that you'll just be able to install on your device and start talking. But there are some features that they're able to test out on Dendrite, and they're using this as a fast-paced testing ground to experiment with new things. One of the things that they're going to be bringing back is iLegs, improved landing as a guest. And we've actually, at Linux Delta, built something very similar to this because we so desperately needed the ability for you, the audience, to be able to interact with us in the chat room. And so if you go to demo.linuxdelta.com, you see our implementation of how we're going to deal with guests. But iLegs is really the best way to do that. Now, we're going to roll our solution out in 2021, but if iLegs, iLegs is a game changer for me because if this, uh, if this, be, if this goes back into production, that becomes, they, they fix all the things and it works, this is the better way to do that. It allows us to have a live chat stream session where you won't need an account. You can just chat with IRC just like when we launched. Again, we have a workaround for it for now. But iLegs is the better way to do that. The issue with iLegs was it would drop you right into the chat and it would let you pick your screen name. Problem was, if you didn't remember your password, you didn't send an email, then you burn that username because it was a guest account. And so they pulled iLegs until that could be fixed. But Dendrite is allowing the Matrix team to iterate faster and faster on new, newer things. And one of those things is threading. And that opens up a number of possibilities for the Matrix team. First, it opens up the possibility for bridging to things like MS, Microsoft Teams and better bridging for Slack, because both of those chat platforms offer threading. But the other thing that offers threading is it means that you can use Matrix in creative and different ways. And so that's where Cerulean comes in. You can learn more at matrix.org. Uh, they have a blog article on introducing Cerulean. We'll have it linked for you in the 
show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Now, it's currently a very minimal JavaScript app. It's only 2,500 lines of code, and it's just a proof of concept. This is not designed for production use, but the idea here is a micro-blogging platform, a decentralized way to use something like Twitter, but based on Matrix. And Cerulean goes into two rooms, dubbed the timeline room and the thread room. The timeline room, with an alias of whatever the alias you want, is a room with all of your posts and no one else's. The threaded room is a normal matrix room which represents the message thread itself. Creating a new post will create a new thread in that room. And replying to a post will obviously uh, join the existing thread in the room and send a message into that room. Um, so this is very exciting. You can test it at cerulean.matrix.org. Again, it's just a proof of concept. So don't expect anything massive. There is also a great Steam sale going on. GamingOnLinux.com has a great write-up. We'll have that for you in the show notes. We do have a show next week. It is live. We'll see you next Tuesday. Tuesday.